I'll say, bless the Lord. If you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Hi, Kairos. I'm Chris, pastor here. We want to be the kind of place that engages the whole person, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, anywhere, anytime, with anybody. Welcome back in the room. So, look at Sharp, buddy. Wow. Um, welcome back. Glad you guys are here. Um, sorry we, uh, the snow apocalypse happened. Um, uh, really appreciate Kelly Minter uh, teaching God's word for us online. If you haven't seen it, go back. Strong word uh, from God's word about Hannah and trusting the Lord's timing and waiting on him. Uh, so is, is everybody good? Everybody survived? Um, We've had a lot of kids at our house, and we've gone through a lot of gummies. Um, but we, we willingly have our possessions plundered for the glory of God. At least that's what I tell myself. Um, uh, my wife and I, uh, one of her things that she wants to do uh, in the next couple months uh, during the season of Lent as we give up certain things to make more room for things that matter most she wants to go back and organize some of our family photo albums because that's kind of like going out of style. But I like having something like a book that you look through. And a lot of times some your memories are formed by photographs. And my wife and I, in our kinder moments to one another, realize we are in the window. Here's what the window is. If you ever take a look at your parents when you're growing up, you're like, oh, oh gosh, they got old. You're just trucking right along in like middle school, high school, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, what happened there? We are now in the, oh, what happened there? What's happening? My body, my face, and my hair is all falling apart. Um, and it's a good thing my identity is in Christ, but there's sometimes I, I get a little bit too close in the mirror, and if you were to hold up my baby picture, you're like, uh-uh, there's no way that's the same dude. My wife, beautiful. She's going to age gracefully. It doesn't matter how many wrinkles she gets. I think she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. She looks exactly like her baby picture. You're like, yep, I can see you right there. That's a Hester, round face, beautiful almond eyes. I love you. Me, it's like, that kid was kind of cute. Now he looks like the old man from Home Alone. That's <laughs> When did that happen? It, it only hurts when I breathe, guys. <laughs> the reason I tell you that is um, over the past couple of months, I've been rereading through the book of Acts with some friends, and I'm looking at the baby picture of the church, and I'm looking around at what we are now, and I'm wondering, is there a resemblance? Is, are we the same church that came from this? Do we still value the same things that this church valued when it started? When God first sent the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what was to come, the way he moved and worked in people's lives, does that still look like us? And I'm kind of wondering, have we, is there a reorientation we need? And the way that I like to say it is this way, what you value will determine how you Live your life. What you value will determine how you live your life. So one of the things that I've been doing after seeing Acts is going back into Jesus' ministry and saying, what did Jesus value? And how did it determine how he lived his life? And how should it determine how I live my life? And so I was, uh, Cameron read this text. This is awesome. We're kind of looking at the life and ministry of Jesus through Luke. 
And there's three things in Jesus' first short sermon that I want you to see here in the text together. There's some other things, but here's just three things I want to highlight. I believe that Jesus valued Sabbath, Scripture, and service. We're going to see those elevated in this text. Is that the only thing he valued? Absolutely not. Okay? Because before this you got right, he values the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. He's coming out. He also values disciple-making. He's calling a group of men who he's going to spend the majority of his time and invest in. But what's really interesting here is you're watching Jesus, and now he has catapulted. He's twending. twending. Take your time, Chris. He's trending on Twitter. Yeah, say that three times fast. Um, all of a sudden, he's this influencer rabbi. His popularity's exploding. Word spreads throughout the countryside about him, right? And if you're one of his PR managers or his tour manager, right, where would you go? You'd hit Jerusalem, one of the big cities, right? Not Jesus. Where does he go? Straight back to his hometown. <laughs> By the way, for as many of you people who have moved here to be rich and famous in, in music and whatever, um, if your tour manager tells you after your first single drops and it's a hit, let's go back to your hometown, fire them. That's not, it's not probably where you want to be. This is Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, okay? It's scuzzy, backwater, poor town, maybe 100, 200 people tops in that village. And he decides he's going to church in his hometown. Uh, Picture this for a second. This is his hometown, his small church. How many people are there? 20? 30? Let's give it a solid 35 if they're rounding numbers up like we do. And all of them are related. It's his cousins he grew up with at the family reunion. It's his aunts and uncles. It's all the creepy relatives he doesn't want to hang out. He's finally ready to get away from. And he comes back into his hometown in his small town church. And I want to know why. Why would you do that, Jesus? Simple line in the text that I want you to hear clearly tonight. As was his custom. What you value will determine how you live your life. Jesus valued observing the Sabbath and attending church. We can talk about Sabbath more. There's plenty of that I love to talk about. But the fact that he went to synagogue, their expression of church in his hometown, even at the height of his ministry and his popularity, it was because it was what he valued. And here's what you need to know. Your values will determine your rhythms, which will determine your behavior, which in turn shapes your character. So who you are becoming in God's eyes will be determined right now by the things that you value and the small decisions that you make along the way. Jesus is sitting in church. Let's, let's, let's have some fun with this. What, what's church like for Jesus? Do you think he sat through boring sermons? Yes. Do you think they argued over which version of the Torah is actually the closest to the original do you think he's like, oh my gosh, this worship music is horrible. Oh my gosh, so-and-so can't even play the harp. Why has no one told her? Do you think it got a little bit frustrating for him when he saw that the church started to ignore social issues all around him and just kind of huddled up and made sure that they were okay? Do you think it bothered him when they were talking more about money than reaching the marginalized? I got one for you. Do you think Jesus ever sat there and thought, you know what? I'm not going to church today because I connect to God better walking through nature and being by a lake than I do going to church. 
Do you think you ever said, oh, maybe I'll skip today because my favorite rabbi isn't speaking? I don't know. But here's what I do know, as was his custom, that Jesus valued the church. Jesus loved the church. He taught in the church. He died for the church. And he's going to return for the church. So maybe you and I need to readjust some of our value systems about the bride of Jesus Christ. What you value will determine how you live your life. And I once uh, was telling a friend what I valued. He says, I don't want to hear what you value. Show me your bank statement and your calendar, and I'll tell you what you value. So when we're sitting down and planning our weeks, does God get the first fruits or does he get the leftovers? When we're working paycheck to paycheck, does God get a tip at the end or does he get the first of it? And we say, will you bless the rest? And that everything that I do is an act of obedience and worship because I want to value the things that you value because what you value will determine how you live your life. Life. Second thing he values in this text is scripture. Isn't that cool? Jesus, by the way, he tells great stories um, and he's incredible and he's the word of God made flesh and dwelt among us. Yet for some reason, his ministry is going public. What's the first thing he's doing? He's reading scripture. Isn't that fantastic? Right? And in the synagogue setting, it would look like this. Any Jew, Ishmael could volunteer to read the text. They would hand him the scroll. He pulls it out. He scrolls down in Isaiah. Scrolls down. <laughs> Gosh, I cracked myself up. Um, stay with it, Chris. He scrolls down. He finds this passage in Isaiah, which is about the coming Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. It means the promised one who restore Israel to its former glory from the lineage of David so that the kingdom of God is established here on earth as it is in heaven. Yay, raw. He finds it. He reads this text. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. To proclaim the good news to the poor, to recover the sight of the blind, to set free the captives, to put at liberty all those who are oppressed and declare the year of the Lord's favor. And he sits down and all the eyes are fixed intently upon Jesus. And he simply says, today in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled. Now, there's a lot in there I could really geek out about, about messianic prophecies, about year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord. What kind of things does he do? What means spiritual? What means physical? What means now? I could really geek out about how the people are like, yes, do it. And he goes, oh, I'm going to do it in a different way. And they're like, kill him, throw him off a cliff. How's that for a response from your first sermon preached in your hometown? That's great. I don't necessarily think it constitutes a calling to ministry, but Jesus is different, Okay. But here's the one line that I want you to see in this text. All of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. If scripture is one of the primary things that Jesus values and one of the primary ways he's revealed to us, my question is how much time are you giving yourself to fix your eyes upon Jesus? Second question is this. Now, this may get wonky, but I think it's good. How much scripture is just sitting here waiting to be fulfilled by you reading it and hearing it? Because the second you hear it and you read it and you see it, 
the Holy Spirit begins to work in you and through you to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth in your unique personality, in your circumstances, and in your brokenness, if we'll just take time to fix our eyes upon Jesus. What you value will determine how you live your life. Scripture, Sabbath, and the last one is service. Or another word we can use is mission, but it doesn't alliterate. So Jesus talks about the messianic promise, right? This is the mission of Jesus. This is the mission, by the way, that we're invited into. So as believers, we can cry out with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, gathered as the church, centered around the scripture and saying this, the spirit of the Lord is upon us. He has anointed us to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim and set it free those who are captive, to recover the sight of the blind and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. We get to do that and that is where the secret sauce is. If some of you are wondering why there is no power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's because there's no mission. That's where you get it. By the way, you can't just value church and scripture and think it's gonna change things. It doesn't. Just ask the Pharisees. You have to be on mission with Jesus. That's where it comes in. That's when things start to collide. That's when static electricity starts to happen. That's when you can't explain why you have reorientated your values around an unseen kingdom in direct defiance to what this world values. But suddenly, oh, you're operating in the power of the Spirit. And even those people who you've grown up with your whole life may be rejecting you. You walk right through the midst of them because your eyes are fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So here's a little visual reminder I want to give you guys that I uh, got introduced to the other day. So as we're looking at the church's baby pictures and we're looking at where we're going and who we want to become and we're trying to figure out how do we operate in the power of the Spirit, um, someone gave me this. It was thought it was pretty cool. It's called the two-room illustration. It talks about uh, the upper room and the lower room. So the upper room is the metaphor for where uh, Acts 1.15 took place. Jesus gives them this mission, make disciples that make disciples. The way that we articulate it here in our unique context is engage the whole person, with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, anywhere, anytime, with anybody. So in Acts 1.15, we know that there's approximately 120 people there gathered, men and women, waiting on the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, like a mighty rushing wind, like fire drops down on top of their heads, and Peter gives us incredible sermons, and you know, people are being added uh, to the church daily. It's awesome, right? That's what we want. That's where the mission is. The mission is in the upper room. Make disciples that make disciples. Probably about 120 people. Okay, cool. Now, here's what's happened over the centuries is we've kind of created church in the lower room as a front door to get to mission. But along the way, our values got a little bit inverted. We started worshiping the method rather than the mission. And here's the ways that most of us get caught up into, and I've been guilty of this too, by the way, and in some of these I've contributed to them. But if we continue to repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, we're never married to a method. We are married to a mission. So here's what you got to watch out for. Sometimes people really let the place of church 
become more important than the mission. Oh, we go here. Our family has gone to this church for three generations. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's awesome if that's, that's where the Lord's calling you to. Sometimes you get in a certain space and you're like, oh, yeah, God met me here and I need, I need another church just like this or I need to stay at this one. So I'm, I could be like this too, by the way. I walk in this room and I'm like, hot dog. It's awesome. The Holy Spirit is here. Sometimes I walk down in the sanctuary and I'm like, oh, my gosh, look at this place. Who wants to worship here? Look at all the pews. Right? I'm guilty of that. And I, you guys are too. Like, if, by the way, if I announce next week, hey, we're never meeting in this room again, we're going to be down in the sanctuary because the special needs needs it and they're going to use it better than we would, would all, you guys be like, yeah, sweet, that's great. You'd be like, no, I've been there for seven years and I drop my cell phone every Sunday night <laughs> at minute 17. How dare you? I'm staying here. Okay. There's nothing wrong with the place. It's just when that becomes the thing that you worship. The next one is personality. And I'm not talking about what girls used to say about me in high school. Chris has a great personality. <gasps> this is when we attach our identity and our church experience on one person. Thank you. This one breaks my heart, one, because I'm guilty of it. Two, I used to do it too. Uh, there's only certain teachers I can listen to, and I'm a snob when it comes to that. You don't want to be around me. Uh, I'm embarrassed of some of the things I used to say about people. Um, I was talking to a girl who grew up going to this church one time at our bus stop, and I told her I was preaching at BBC on Sunday morning, big church, right? And she goes, oh, I remember when we used to go there. I'm like, oh, yeah? Yeah, my mom would call on Friday and ask if Mike Glenn was preaching on Sunday. And if it wasn't, we didn't go. <laughs> I said, well, tell her to stay home then. But that's normal, right? You attach, rather than the mission of Jesus, that we make disciples, that the Holy Spirit meets with us. Regardless of who's in the room, all of a sudden it's only if this person is in the room. So then the other one, whoop, programs. You get a certain program, right, that you really love and you're passionate about, and as long as the church offers it, you're in, and you'll give your resources, but the second that disappears, you're gone, and so is your money. Gosh. Those are all can be certain ministries, certain things that Kairos used to do in the past and we no longer do. Why don't we do that program anymore? Maybe it's time to reinterpret it, reinvent it. There's some programs that need to live on. There's some that just need to die for the glory of God. And the Lord needs to raise up new leaders and new ways for connecting. Parents, we're guilty of this real bad. We'll go to any church that has a good program for our kids. Because, Lord, we see their sin all the time, and they're like, somebody help that child, okay? <laughs> I don't care if it's because you got a slide in your children's department. I'll push you. Great. <laughs> all right. A place, personality, programs, and then one thing that's really subtle, that's an awesome thing, but can get out of whack is people. We finally are known and valued, and we find a group of people to do life with. And it starts out on mission, right? To make disciples that make disciples, to multiply, to invite along those who have believed and yet to believe. 
to apprentice ourselves to the life of Jesus and to make sure we're after what Jesus is after, the last, the least, and the lost. And it's incredible, but at some point, it galvanizes, and we finally say, you know what? No, what we have with each other is too good. We don't want to let anybody else in because it'll ruin what we have. And it's in that moment that the church begins to die. When you put your preferences above the mission, and when you say, I want to protect the intimacy and friendship I have rather than extending warmth to the person who does not yet belong. That means there's pain, and that means we multiply and we divide, and that means there's seasons that are incredible and we weep when they're over. But we never put a certain group of people above the mission that Jesus invited us on. So just watch out for those things. Now, here's what I'll tell you, and then uh, Cameron will come up and lead us in 120 seconds. Um, This is uh, Rodney Stark, who is a historian who studies Christianity but is not a Christian. He's got a super long title of his book. But he was looking at how did the Christian movement go from 120 people to about 6 million people, 10% of the earth's population in only 200 years. That's ridiculous. That shouldn't happen. It was amazing. And then you know what happens after that? Alan Hirsch comes in and says, you know what? And that incredible multiplication, here's what they never had. A church building or professional clergy. And yet it radically multiplied and spread to every nation. There's what? 220 people in this room? What would happen if you walked up these stairs and said, you know what, these are good, and I like these, and these are important, but I will not worship them. What I want to do is I want to be on mission with Jesus, where his power, his presence is electric, and we see it multiply in a divide in a way that a world cannot explain. Amen? So we're going to take 120 seconds. Cameron's going to pastor us through that and see what the Holy Spirit might speak to you.